Turn in your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 10, verses 1 through 7. Revelation 10, verses 1 through 7. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. And his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and seeing what is in it, that there would be no more delay. But that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God will be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Thank you. you. may be seated. Well, I'm very happy to be with you this evening, and I'm very grateful for your presence tonight. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for the fine prayers that you've led us in and for the beautiful singing we've had tonight, Lynn. We're very grateful. And we're always very happy to have our visitors with us, and we hope that you'll come and be with us whenever we possibly can. As Phil had mentioned, we had a great day, and, and we're very happy about uh, the events of the day as we've come together to worship God and Others are being added to our number to work with us, and we're very happy to have you. And we hope that uh, you will come to see just how much we love God and love one another. We've been studying the book of Revelation now. We call this our Sunday night seminar. And on a Sunday night seminar, we do things just a little bit differently. We spend more time, first of all, on a subject that we probably wouldn't just preach on. And then, secondly, we spend more time delving into it and trying to go deeper into the subject than what a sermon might allow. And so our Sunday night seminars are a little different. Accompanying our Sunday night seminars is a handout. If you do not have one, please raise your hand. And these deacons are poised, ready to help you and give you a handout. And I encourage you to take the handouts and keep them. We have prepared them for you to uh, keep and prepare and read on... Uh, future occasions, so you can file them away, and, and that, I hope, will help you. It'll certainly help you in following along in our reasoning and our study tonight. We're on chapter 10. Uh, we've covered a lot of material, and by now, you may be thinking that this book is just a little too much uh, for one to really understand, because there's so many things that have been going on, and we have talked about so many different topics. Uh, in fact, each Sunday night that we would come together on the book, we talk about background materials and things such as that, and your mind may be beginning to look like that when it comes to the book of Revelation. You may be thinking, well, all this information is just all kind of jumbled up. So let's take a moment and take a breath here. We're coming close to the middle of the book, and so let's take a moment and see if we can line some of all these facts up some of these facts, and, and see if we can make more sense out of them. We've studied a lot of background material, haven't we? Uh, we've studied about the author of the book, uh, being John on the island of Patmos. We studied considerable 
discussion about the dating of the book. A lot depends on that, whether it be the so-called early date in the 60s that you take or the so-called late date in the 90s. I took the late date. It seems to me that this explains more uh, about the book of Revelation than the early date does. It does seem to fit. The location, John's on the island of Patmos and he's there as preaching the gospel, preaching the gospel of Christ. It was the Alcatraz of his day. And he was there as punishment. And there he receives this great revelation. The audience that is to uh, uh, be seen are the churches of the first century. In fact, there were seven of those churches uh, that is specifically identified in the book. And you find them identified in chapters 2 and 3. And they have, John has commendation for each of them. And he has, uh, well, I think for most of them, there is an exception to that. And he has condemnation for some of them. This, of course, is the revelation of Christ that Christ has given to John. And so Christ does know the work of these congregations. And so these seven congregations of Asia become a very important part of the message. The style is a very different style, isn't it? We've learned that. It is an apocalyptic style. The word apocalypsis, the original word, means to reveal. It means to pull the curtain back and to be able to see through to the other side. And so we take our English word, apocalypse, from that original Greek word, and the original meaning is quite different than what we normally apply or think of today. The normal meaning of the word apocalypse today means the final end or devastation or tragedies upon us. It is the apocalypse. But that's not really the way the word was intended to be used. The word was used as a means of pulling the curtain aside. Now you see behind me is a set of curtains there. If we were to pull those curtains aside and be able to see what's on the other side of the curtain, that would be a kind of revelation, an apocalypse. We could be able to see beyond them. That's what John is allowed to do in this last book of the New Testament. The only New Testament book of prophecy that we have, the book of Revelation. I spend a little time talking about the style of the literature because that necessarily... Uh, has a basis of our approach of interpretation, and there are many. And I think that's where we get bogged down in the approach. There are so many different approaches to the book, and people begin to read this one, and they begin to read that one, and they become confused because this one is different from that one, and that one is different from that one over there. And they begin to say, well, you know, nobody can understand this, and, and they just don't even try However, the message of the book is extremely valuable, and that is Christ has overcome. He has overcome the wickedness of this world and Satan of this world, and his saints will overcome. Those who are faithful to him and obedient to him will, re- will eat of the tree in the paradise of God, and we'll get to that in Revelation chapter 20, 21, and 22. So the style and the message are very important. The style is very figurative, and we don't try to understand every little rock and bush of the book. Now, we could spend countless hours trying to do that, but it's really fruitless. I'll illustrate that even more tonight. What we're looking at is the basic message. Let us not major in the minors. Let us not spend all our focused time on little intricate details we'll never be able to answer. But let us get the basic message of what the book is about. 
the church of the Lord will be victorious over the ways of this world. Now, when it comes to our study specifically, we've covered a lot of material. Uh, chapter 1 is the uh, one likened to the Son of Man. Jesus is there walking among the candlesticks, which represent the churches, and uh, His faithful servants there. The, church, the letters to the congregations, the seven churches, are given to us in chapter 2 and chapter 3 as we've studied. 4 and 5 are one of my favorite sections of the book because there you have the throne room scene in chapter 4, the great worship of God and the, the four and twenty elders and the four living creatures and all of the heavenly beings that are created and thus around the throne of God worshiping Him. And it's quite an uplifting and exciting scene to read Revelation 4. And then there is that one that has the book, God Himself, Sealed with seven seals. And you and I talked about what a seal is. A seal protects the message. A seal shows the authenticity of the message. And there was no one in heaven to open the seals. And John wept, and you'll recall that in chapter 5. But yet an elder told him, he said, Don't weep. There is one who's able to open the seals of the book and reveal the message of God. And John looked and saw the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the lamb that had been slain. And he took the book from the right hand of God. And if you'll go back and read Revelation chapter 5, you'll see how exciting that chapter is because all of heaven now erupts and praises God, all of the living creatures that God has created because there is one who's able to loose the seals of the book and in turn let us see what the message of God is. And it's quite an exciting chapter. Chapter 6 is the breaking of the six seals, but there are seven. And we immediately think, well, what's the next seal, the seventh seal to reveal? And there is an interlude in heaven. Now, we've called it that, chapter 7. Um, <clears throat> there's a reason for that. There's a, a purpose for the interlude. He does not immediately reveal what the seventh seal has to say. But in chapter 7, you have the sealing of the 144,000. Now, you and I spent a lot of time talking about, again, that figurative group of people, the saved on earth in John's day, not a literal 144,000, as certain cults and denominational churches assert. But it is a figurative number, all of the saved on earth in John's day. But then also in that chapter is an innumerable number of saints in heaven worshiping and praising God. And there is no number to that. They are so numerous in their number. The combined saved of all ages and all days are now seen. The saved on earth during the times of this great struggle and tribulation, the times of persecution from the Roman Empire, but then also the redeemed in heaven, praising God. Then comes the seventh seal, the seal on the scroll. I call it sometimes a book. Uh, sometimes the writers will say book literally. It is a scroll which is sealed with seven seals and each seal is opened up and the contents of the seal are revealed and there you have now the seventh seal and what does the seventh seal reveal? But seven trumpets. And we have uh, in chapter 9 the discussion of the seven trumpets, chapter 8 and chapter 9. And wouldn't you know it, just when we're ready to listen to the seventh trumpet, there is another interlude, and we're just waiting to see what the seventh trumpet would reveal. 
The trumpets, of course, reveal God's judgment upon the world, the desire for God to get men to repent. But because they're so rebellious and stiff-necked and stubborn, they refuse to repent, even though God brings devastation upon the earth. It might be on the land, or it might be on the sea, or it might be in the sky, the luminaries, the sun, moon, and stars, or uh, whatever it might be, the vegetation of the earth. A portion is destroyed to teach man to repent of his sins and turn to God. Now, I made the statement a couple of Sunday nights ago, and I'll make it again tonight. And that is that there are some men who are smart enough to predict the weather. All of us talk about the weather, but very few of us learn lessons from the weather. And the lesson that we're to learn from the weather is that life is very short and very uncertain, and that our lives could be called into question before the judgment bar of God at any time. And therefore, we need to repent of our sins and be prepared for that day. We face devastation and tragedies in our own day, whether it be by means of the weather or the hands of wicked and lawless men or whomever it might be, some tragic accident, the downing of an airplane, a commercial airliner in Asia, wherever it might be. These are devastating tragedies that take place. And what should our attitude be towards such? Life is short and life is very uncertain and we need to be ready for the end whenever it might be. We're not given a lease on life. It is told in the pages of the Bible that our life is like a vapor that appears for a little time and vanishes away. We're here today and we're gone tomorrow. That's the point of the trumpets. Not that there are literal trumpets to be blown, but that the message of the trumpets is God's trying to show and teach through means of devastation and tragedy. This is what we ought to be doing. We ought to be repenting and we ought to be thinking about Him. Now, tonight we come to chapter 10, and it is a pivotal chapter because we have the angel with the little book in verses 1 through 7. And uh, in that particular instance, we're going to see basically two things, and I point this out in the outline. The two things that we need to understand is, one, appreciate the content of the little book. And number two, we need to appropriate the contents of the little book. And there's a difference between those two words to appreciate something, and to appropriate that thing, to appreciate and respect the message of the book, and to put it into practice, to take a hold of it and make it part of us. And that's what the 10th chapter, really, of Revelation is about, to look at the message of God, respect it for what it is, and make it a part of our lives. And so this great angel tonight is introduced to us in chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. And you and I will begin our study tonight of new material as we discuss this great book of the pages of the Bible. With your Bible open, turn to chapter 10 of the book of Revelation. And verse 1 tells us, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. Now I pause here immediately because the very first thing that commentaries want to say is that the angel is Jesus, or the angel is the Son of God. But nowhere in the Bible is Jesus described as an angel. Uh, I think that conveys the wrong idea altogether. What is an angel? An angel is a spiritual created being. What are human beings? Physically created human beings. There are physically created human beings. You and I, there are spiritually created beings, angels. 
as messengers of God. And Jesus Christ is not a created being. In fact, it's made very clear in the writing of John, John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, and all through the prologue of that book, that Jesus is not a created being, but has always existed. So I would deny that the passage is referring to Christ as the mighty angel, though there are a number of commentaries that you will pick up and try to say, well, now this is Jesus and the preaching of the gospel, but I don't think so. He's described as a mighty angel. He's come down from heaven. Now, he's described in powerful, vivid ways, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. There is no doubt he has a very close association and relationship to uh, the Godhead. But I don't believe that he is God. I don't believe he is the Son of God. I believe all that he is is a mighty angel that God has used in his service. Now, you have to stop and think about this. Here we are in the late 90s of the first Christian century, and you have a tyrannical Roman empire that is filled with lust of itself and worldly pleasure, persecuting these people of God, the church of God. And they look upon their life and the scenes that are before them, and they wonder, now, how can we stand up against all of that? How are we going to be able to outlast such a powerful, wicked empire as the Roman Empire. But when you see this mighty uh, creature, this angel, your concept of power and authority begins to change because he says, now here's another mighty angel coming down from heaven. So God is showing his saints. There is power they don't realize. He's wrapped in a cloud, showing majesty and glory. With a rainbow over his head and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. So it is quite a picture that he paints for us in this matter, but the focus is not on the angel. The focus is on the little book. He had, verse 2, a little, uh, a little scroll opened in his hand, and he set his right hand, foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he called out with a loud voice like a ro- lion roaring, you see, I think this English, tra- English Standard Version, a little better translation of this, it does call it a scroll, and that's what it was. It's a scroll. And we saw the other scroll in chapter 5 that had the seven seals, as I've mentioned about the loosening of the seals. Well, here he has a little scroll in his hand. Now, the other scroll that we learned about in chapter 5 was in the right hand of God, and no one was able to open that particular scroll except the Lamb of God. Now, here is an open scroll. The scroll is open in his hand. It's already opened. And he sets one foot on the sea and one foot on the land, showing the universality and the authority that this particular spiritual being and creature has. And he called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. Here comes a great proclamation from the throne of God. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. Now, if you'll notice in this particular passage, we have a procedural point that we've not seen before. We have seen where he was told to write. But the procedural point that I make mention of and and direct our attention to is it looks like the procedure that is taking place is that the vision comes before John, and as the vision comes before him, he writes it down. 
And so he's prepared to write this particular matter down, and he was commanded to write these matters down so that the people could read and understand. And when the matter, he says, I was about to write, verse 4, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up the seven thunders what they have said, and do not write it down. And so he's not allowed to reveal what the seven thunders have said. Now the opening of the seven seals was to reveal the will of God. But here the seven thunders have sounded, and they have revealed God's will, and John was ready to write that down, but God tells him, stop, do not write it down. Now it's absolutely useless for us to try to conjecture as to what the seven thunders said. And you'd be surprised at how much time is spent by commentaries and great thinkers on this great book as to what was the message of the seven thunders. We will never know. It was told, do not write that down. You know, it reminds you of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And you and I have been studying about that from the pages of the Bible and our Sunday morning Bible class, how Paul went into that vision and revelation of chapter 12. We talked about it today. But he was told, do not utter these things. Do not relate these particular things to the vision. How that he knew a man that was caught into the third heaven and that he was allowed to see visions and revelations of God, but he wasn't allowed to reveal such. Well, it's very similar to what I have here in chapter 10 of the book of Revelation. He's about to do his job in writing and recording the revelation, but he's told, do not write it down. Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. Now, the little scroll that had the seven seals is opened up, but here we have a message that's sealed up with regard to the seal. The seal will guarantee and protect the message, whatever the message of the seven thunders happens to be. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, and there would be no more delay. We've come to this particular point of the angel and his oath. The angel now lifts his mighty hand before God, as the text is going to tell us, and there, there would be no more delay. Uh, he says in verse 7, But in the days of the trumpet called to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced in his ser- servants uh, the prophets. So he raises his hand before God and swore by him who lives forever and ever, verse 6, who created heaven and what is in it and earth and what is in it and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. That was a common posture of the day, to raise one's hand toward heaven. It was like taking an oath, and that's what the angel is doing here. He's taking his oath before God to do what God has told him to do, to do the will of God, and in turn to be faithful to the message of God. You know, sometimes, uh, whether it be in the courtroom or not, you know, they used to have the Bible there. They put your hand on the Bible and raise your right hand. Do you solemnly swear to tell the truth, hold truth, not about the truth, help you God? And, of course, uh, whatever oath that a person wanted to take was found to be legal in the court. Uh, Do you swear to tell the truth? You you swear to tell nothing but the truth? And they would say yes. And some people actually had refused to put their hand on the Bible. I think the practice is no longer uh, available today. You just simply raise your hand and take an oath to tell the truth. Well, there was a president who did not hold the Bible. He didn't put his hand on the Bible when he took the oath of office. He just raised his hand. You see, the raising of the hand 
And the putting of the hand on the Bible is basically the same gesture. People don't realize that. You can take your Bible, put your hand on the Bible, and raise your hand up, or you just raise your hand, and it basically is saying the same thing. It's the same kind of gesture. And that is to say, I swear before God that I'm going to tell the truth. I'm swearing before witnesses that my testimony will be true. And there in turn, we have this angel doing the same thing. He is raising his hand. He's saying, I'm going to um, do the will of God and swore by him, verse 6, who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, and that's what we're waiting on. I want to know what that seventh angel has to say with regard to the blowing of that trumpet, but I'm not going to see it until chapter 11, verse 15. I've got an interlude here, and I'm waiting for that seventh angel to blow his trumpet, just as he announced to his servants and the prophets. And so the angel is saying, and he swears by God, that there will be no longer any delay in these particular matters. Well, there's so much more material that needs to be discussed. I want to talk about that mystery, uh, the mystery of God in verse 7. The word mystery, the Greek word musterion, is a word which simply means... That which was once concealed has now been revealed. Now, the modern concept of the word mystery means uh, it's a baffle. You know, it's an enigma. Uh, It really is intriguing. I can't explain it. It's a mystery. But that's not really what the biblical word means here. The biblical word means it was once concealed. Men could not figure it out. Men could not understand it. There was no knowledge of it. But now God has revealed it, and we can understand the matter clearly before God. Turn with me to the book of Ephesians. I want to spend a brief moment talking about the word mystery, as it is used in the New Testament, and particularly in the book of Revelation chapter 10. I think we have an example of the usage of the word here in this particular passage, and by it we can understand its meaning. In Ephesians 1 and 9, you have the following statement. Making known to us the mystery of His will. Now, that's our word. According to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ. And so He had a mystery there. He set forth that mystery. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now, if you go on down and read Ephesians 1 and the rest of these passages... We're going to see precisely what the mystery was that Paul had in mind. He is talking about the inclusion of the Gentile world into the church of Jesus Christ. That the gospel was given to the Jews, but God also wanted the Gentiles to hear the word of God and obey it and be included in the blessings that God had promised. That's the mystery. Paul talks about that in Ephesians chapter 1. He uses the word mystery, John does, in the very same way, Revelation chapter 10. And our passage for consideration for the present is verse 7. He says there, But in the days of the trumpet called to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. God's going to bring to completion his promise. Now, what he has in mind here is the scheme of redemption. The end of time will be. So I have an indication as to what the seventh trumpet's going to be about. 
We're waiting, brethren, for the call of the seventh trumpet where God will bring all things to an end and the completion of His divine plan of salvation for all men will be brought to a close. Now, you and I will learn more about that as time goes along, but I give you some indication of it for the present. Now I need to look at our second point tonight, and I must hurry, and you're very patient to listen to me, and I hope I don't sound like I'm ranting and raving over these particular matters, but I get excited about these passages and what they have to say for us tonight. And I'm in a very special chapter, chapter 10, and chapter 10 is telling me not only must I appreciate the book, but I must appropriate the book. And now I'm on that point of appropriation. And notice what John is told to do. Then the voice, verse 8 says, that I had heard from the heavens speak to me again, saying, Go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who was standing in the sea and on the land. So now John is not just an observer, but John is now a participant in the vision and the revelation. And John is told to appropriate. Take the book. Go to the angel and take the book. The angel that has one foot on the land and one foot on the sea. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll, verse 9, and he said to me, take and eat it. Now can you imagine that? Eat the book. You know, that's not something we normally do, do we? I mean, we have books on our bookshelves. We put them up. We put them in a a special Dewey Decimal type of code and arrangement. Uh, They collect dust. Sometimes we even read the books. But I don't know that we ever ate a book. But this is what the prophet is told to do. Eat the book. But if I look at this from a standpoint of a figure of speech, you know, sometimes I've said the same thing. I loved this book so much, I just devoured it. Ezekiel was told to eat the book, eat the scroll. So it's not so unusual that this prophecy and this writer, John, would be told, take the book and eat it. What the angel means by that is, appropriate the book, take it in. Take its message in. And he tells him, when you do that, it will be a bittersweet message. Some of it will be very bitter, and some of it will be very sweet. And John does, just as he was instructed to do by the angel. He takes the book, he eats the book, and it has that consequence. It will make your stomach bitter, the angel said, but in your mouth. It will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And let me pause for a moment before I look at verse 11. Why would the little book have a sweet taste to it and yet at the same time have a bitter taste to it? It's because the message of the little book. It is the message of God to preach the Word of God, the message of God. Anytime 
I got up to preach the Word of God, there was always a type of joy in my heart over that prospect. But it seemed like to me that there was always a tear in my eye. It was necessary to expose sin. And the little book contains a message which exposes sin. If you'll notice, a lot of the book of Revelation does that very thing. Turn with me to chapter 9. In chapter 9, the last verse of that chapter. I'll read the last two verses. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. A lot of this book has to do with exposing the heinous nature of sin. That's the bitter part of the book. Notice chapter 18 of the book of Revelation, and I'll, I'll jump a little ahead as I want to save this section called the fall of Babylon for future study. But notice what he says, For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. And he goes on and describes the wickedness of the people. A lot of the little book is a bitter message exposing sin and the punishment because of sin. If you'll notice, the book of Revelation talks a lot about punishment. Turn to Revelation chapter 19. And the verse that I want to highlight for the present is found for us in verse 20. And the beast was captured. I will explain all that later. And the beast was captured And with it the false prophet who was in the presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And there's just all kinds of discussion about punishment. Notice chapter 20. I'm in um, verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. It is a bitter message. And John is told by the angel, eat the book. But when you eat the book, I want you to understand it has consequences. It is a bitter, sweet taste to it. It is honey to the mouth, but it is bitter to the stomach. And the bitter part of the message is the exposure of sin and mankind falling into temptation and embracing the sin. A big part of the book of Revelation tells us that most of the people are going to reject the message of the little book. They will not appropriate it. They will not accept what God has told them to do, and they refuse to repent. And when the angel tells John, eat the book, appropriate it, make it a part of your life, make it become yourself, he in turn realizes it has a sweet taste to the mouth. Oh, what a pleasant thing God has done to save those from sin and to give eternal life to the righteous. But notice it has a bitter taste to the stomach. And that is because so many will reject the teaching of God and suffer the consequences for it. They will not only reject God, they will also reject the messengers of God. And every faithful messenger of God must make the message of the little book his own. There is no way to separate the faithful messenger 
from the faithful message. They must be one and the same. He must appreciate it. He must appropriate it. He must make it his own message as he proclaims the will and the word of God. And faithful proclamations of God's word met great suffering and persecution. Revelation chapter 10. There's um, one more point we need to make, and that's verse 11. And I was told you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Take the message of the little book and tell people about it. Take the message of the little book and proclaim it. Now notice how he says it in verse 11. You what? Must. It is a command. You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. John, that is your mission, to preach and teach the message of the little book, the Word of God, to all mankind. Now, the blowing of the seventh trumpet will take place a little later. We will continue our discussion in chapter 11, and we actually see the blowing of the seventh trumpet in verse 15. And uh, it really marks the end of God's plan and purpose for mankind. The blowing of the seventh trumpet will take place, and as it does, the end will be. We are living in the time where we await the blowing of the seventh trumpet. It is a figurative expression. It is symbolic to say we're living in a time where the church of the Lord waits for the coming of Christ and the righteous receiving the eternal reward of everlasting life. When will that be? I don't know. You don't know. Nobody knows when that will be. The blowing of the seventh trumpet will be, though, someday. And God will bring His work of righteousness to an end. And all those who have been prepared and obedient to the will of God and have lived faithful Christian lives will turn and be with Him forever in glory. And those who have had their opportunity but refuse to do so will face the judgment of a devil's hell. The thing that we must do is we must appreciate the little book, the message of the Word of God, appropriate the little book, make it our own message by obeying it and teaching it to others before it is too late while we have the opportunity. That is Revelation chapter 10. If you've never obeyed the gospel tonight, you see how important now it is to repent of sin and confess your faith in Christ and be baptized into Christ for the remission of sins. You see now how important that is. You know, we just don't know when the end of time will be. Nobody does. God will bring His great judgment about. And we'll all stand before the judgment seat of God, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. You've been unfaithful to the Word of God. Now's the time to repent of that and make known the fact before God. Get out on your knees, figuratively speaking, and say, Lord God, forgive me my sins. I've been unfaithful and I've been negligent. Help me to be a faithful child of God. Strengthen me through your word so that I can do what you want me to do and be what you want me to be. What a wonderful opportunity it is tonight for us to do that. And I hope you will. Won't you come while together we stand and while we sing?